everyone, uh, you're tuned in to Sound Science, the first ever episode. I'm your host, Yuan Day. I'm a neuroscientist based in LA and I study the brain. And on this show, I'm going to be sharing with you scientific stories that affect your life uh, with the help of guest experts from across the field of neuroscience. But this is a music show too, so I have created the music to the theme of the science question. If you are a science curious, music loving person I think you're going to be into it because this is all about the science of heartbreak why emotional pain feels like physical pain but before we get started listen to this nightmares that I was a heroin addict who didn't get my drug. I would wake up feeling confused and and it felt like my body was just in turmoil because it didn't get what it was used to. I remember it distinctly. It was this incredibly unpleasant feeling of heaviness in my chest and not being able to breathe. Okay, 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 okay. The people that you've just heard from are recalling physical and emotional pain experiences. I'm sure you'll agree, trying to work out which one is which is really hard. Now, think about your own experiences, uh, the last physical pain you experienced versus how it felt when you broke up with an ex. On the surface, the two things are completely different. However, cultures around the world use the same language, words like hurt and pain to describe both experiences, raising the question, how similar are social and physical pain? Physical pain is your body's way of alerting you that it might be in danger. And you perceive it through sensory nerve cells, the same ones that allow you to smell, see, hear, taste and touch. And so when we encounter harmful stimulus, anything that damages or threatens to damage our body tissue, millions of microscopic pain receptors in our skin get set off. Now, these pain receptors form one end of a nerve cell, which align into a network of fibers that carry messages from the skin, the muscle, the internal organs, wherever the pain is, to your spinal cord and brain. When these signals hit the brain, The brain interprets the messages as pain and sends signals back to the body to tell it what to do to avoid danger. This kind of pain is not a pleasant experience, but it does serve as an evolutionarily crucial purpose, which is that it gets people's attention. 
it lets them know that there's a threat to their well-being and it motivates them to take remedial action. So when pain arises from a tissue injury, the crucial attention getting function of pain is really obvious because if you didn't notice physical pain, you wouldn't be motivated to avoid potential sources of life-threatening danger. Humans, along with other mammals, and here's the really cute part, have another source of potential protection from life's dangers. Each other. The Estonian neuroscientist Jack Panksiep argued that from birth, all mammals are utterly dependent creatures whose survival is founded on the quality of our social bonds. Some researchers actually argue that the neuroarchitecture, in other words, how the neurons in the brain are connected, for the experience of social pain, has effectively just piggybacked onto the already established neuroarchitecture that evolved for the experience of physical pain. Overlapping social and physical pain systems may have actually conferred an advantage among our evolutionary ancestors because many mammalian species have an extended infancy during which young are unable to defend themselves. Um, so that means that maintaining social connections from an early age is actually critical for survival because who's going to feed you, who's going to protect you from predators? So actually feeling hurt by separation may have offered an adaptive edge. But this is the annoying part. What happens beyond infancy? So we've survived and that's great, but now we're left with a redundant survival mechanism that means that having our partner tell us that they no longer want to be together literally feels like they stabbed us in the heart. So is social pain more than just a metaphor? physical and emotional pain are caused by different things but feel the same, what is going on in the brain? There are loads of studies that have attempted to address this question by identifying which parts of the brain light up on a functional MRI brain scanner, which is an incredible invention that completely opened up a whole new field of neuroscience research. In these studies, participants would sit in a functional MRI brain scanner and carry out a physically painful task or an emotionally painful one. Both physical pain and emotional pain are generally distressing. It doesn't matter which one you're experiencing, they're both rubbish. So it does make sense that these studies have shown that a network of brain regions that support the unpleasant quality of physical pain, which is called the affective component, also underlie the feelings of social rejection. No surprises there. And for a while, the general consensus was that this is as far as the overlap went. It was thought that the sensory component of physical pain, that's the part that makes you go ouch when you step on a nail, did not underlie emotional pain. But then a study came along to challenge this idea. So in the earlier studies, the emotional rejection tasks that they got the participants to do when they were in the brain scanning machine included a social exclusion game called Cyberball. With Cyberball, um, what you're doing is you're playing a ball tossing game with two other participants that you can't see, but you believe to also be in the room. And the two other participants will eventually stop throwing the ball. So you become left out. Now, here's the thing. 
not having a ball thrown to you is somewhat distressing, but nowhere near the same level as the pain that is associated with breaking up with someone. So the new study proposed that social rejection actually might activate brain regions which are specific for sensory processes, but only when the stimulus is sufficiently intense. So to find out, um, the group recruited 40 men and women who had recently felt intensely rejected as a result of an unwanted relationship breakup. While being scanned in the brain scanner, the participants took part in two tests. In the first, they were asked to view a headshot of their former partner and think about the specific rejection experience. The other was to receive hot thermal stimulation um, on their left forearm, which is just another way of saying that the scientists burnt their arm. Um, and then they had to rate how they felt after each task trial. So when the scientists analysed the functional MRI data, what they saw was that the areas of the brain that support the sensory components of physical pain, so remember that's the the part that makes you go ouch, actually do become active when giving the participants pictures of their ex to, to look at and think about the rejection pain. So they were actually right. When emotional pain is intense enough, like having your heart broken badly enough, it is so bad that it will then engage the same pathways in the brain that are involved in you stepping on a nail. So what if I told you that you could treat emotional pain with a pill in the same way that you treat physical pain? So I'm not talking about taking a drug that makes you just generally feel better by increasing the level of the feel-good hormone serotonin in your brain or a drug that just makes you feel completely numb so you don't feel anything. I'm talking about a pill that would stop you from feeling emotional pain in the same way that it would stop you from feeling a headache. That's what a paper published in 2010 showed. Uh, it used the drug acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, a pain reliever used for headaches, muscle aches, um, back pain, that kind of thing. And it was able to show that this drug reduced the neural responses to social rejection in brain regions that were previously associated with distress caused by social pain. So I was really fascinated by this. So I spoke to Professor Nathan Dewall uh, about his findings in this paper, and the interview is up next. Hi, Professor Dewall, this is Yuande calling. Welcome to Sound Science. I'm super excited to have you as my guest expert. Thank you so much for getting back to me. I'm absolutely fascinated by your work. Great. Well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I could help you out. On Sound Science today, we're focusing on why emotional pain like heartbreak feels like physical pain. What's going on in your brain to make you sort of confuse those two experiences in terms of what you feel I was reading your paper on the painkiller Tylenol and how that reduces social pain. It's something that's typically used for um, physical ailments like headaches. Um, would you mind just starting by telling me a little bit about how you came up with the idea for that particular study? Well, we knew that when people talk about being rejected, they often use words that are related to physical pain. So they say, 
you know, I feel hurt, I feel crushed, I feel brokenhearted. And this isn't something that's unique to English. I mean, really every known language does this. And so there seemed to be this metaphorical connection. And so uh, we were really curious if there is actually a neurobiological basis for this. And so uh, looking at some previous research, there seemed like there was a reason to expect um, this connection neurobiologically when people feel, you know, left out or lonely or rejected, that their body would actually experience it as if it was experiencing a physical injury. And so we, what we did was we went the next step, is we said, if that's true, um, if you numb people to physical pain, would it numb them to the pain of rejection? And that's how we came up with the idea for this study. I know that some people might self-medicate in other ways by using drugs that, I guess, increase the serotonin in the brain that makes them feel good as a way to kind of compensate right, for the pain. Right. We were 100% interested. So, so why did we pick acetaminophen mm -hmm. as our drug? Yeah. And the main reason is safety. Because we we consulted with you know, medical doctors and told them about our idea, and I said, you know, what's what's the safest drug that you think would reduce, you know, physical pain? And they said acetaminophen. And so the the maximum daily dose. We weren't anywhere near the maximum daily dose, and the sample of participants we were using the population were college students and they're incredibly healthy and so we uh, we felt very confident number one that we would have really isolated what we were trying to isolate which is simply reducing pain uh, rather than making people feel better we were just trying to make people not feel as bad and number two that by participating in the study that people would 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 be safe. They wouldn't get addicted to acetaminophen because it's not addictive. Just to let the listeners know, um, acetaminophen is um, called Tylenol over here in the States, um, but in the UK, uh, acetaminophen is just paracetamol. What did the study um, end up showing in terms of, because you did carry out um, functional MRI? as part of the study, right. didn't you? So what did you actually see? And did you see any interesting anomalies that you couldn't explain? So our, our study showed that when people took the placebo pills, when they were rejected, their body responded as if they experienced a physical injury. So we showed increased activation in the cingulate gyrus, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, and the anterior insula. Now, what we also found is that uh, those activations were significantly reduced among participants who took acetaminophen. So when people feel rejected, their body is responding as if it's experiencing physical pain. And when you numb people to physical pain, it takes that away. Now, when you talk about interesting anomalies uh, that we couldn't explain, uh, well, one thing that we really haven't made heads or tails up yet is matching what is happening in the brain to what people tell us. And so uh, in that same study, we had a self-report measure of distress. 
And that was taken, you know, some time after they completed the actual task. We didn't find any, any differences on what people told us. We really found the differences on what, what was actually happening in the brain. Okay, I can feel my synapses fizzing. This is so interesting. I cannot wait to hear more. Um, but I think we need a little break, a little bit of music to let the info sink in. And then we'll be back straight afterwards for more. Stay locked. Uh, uh, uh. Whoa, whoa. Obviously, drugs like morphine, they have a similar effect on reducing physical as well as emotional pain. But morphine is, of course, highly addictive and therefore quite dangerous, while acetaminophen isn't. So should more of us actually be using it to reduce the distress of rejection in terms of avoiding the downstream negative behaviours like aggression that you found through your work? You... You raise an interesting question, which is something that really speaks to a massive epidemic that we have going on in this country, is, is people taking opiate drugs. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of times, like right now, we are trying to understand why people are doing that. And what no one is saying is that they may be doing this because they feel left out, lonely, isolated, and excluded. And I don't think it's a coincidence that people who are most at risk for taking opiates and uh, specifically experiencing an overdose from an opiate are people who are at, uh, are, are really left out by society. And so in terms of you know, should people be using acetaminophen? Yeah, I'd have to say use acetaminophen before you take an opiate. There's recent work 
by some researchers at the University of Pittsburgh that showed that one reason why we crave social connection so much is that it actually activates the body's opiate system. So you talk about getting a runner's high. Well, you get a social connection high as well. And I would, you know, that's my main recommendation is that instead of taking drugs, the people get high on social connections. We deal with emotional pain in different ways. But what if part of the way that we cope with emotional pain is actually out of our control and rather built into our genes? So going back to my interview with Professor Dewall, painkillers like morphine not only alleviate the distress of physical pain, but also the distress of social separation. So since morphine acts on the opioid receptor, one really interesting question is whether a variation in the gene that codes for the opioid receptor in some individuals actually accounts for differences in rejection sensitivity to social rejection. And the answer to that question came in 2008, when one group of scientists tried to find out if DNA polymorphism, a non-disease-causing single change or deletion or insertion to the building blocks that make up our DNA. So in other words, we have amongst us variations in our genes and that can give rise to differences in certain human behaviours. So it's been shown that one of these DNA polymorphisms is involved in physical pain sensitivity. This group of scientists thought, well, given the overlap between the way that we process physical and emotional pain, perhaps this polymorphism could also be involved in social pain sensitivity as well. So in the study, they interviewed 122 participants and they got them to complete a self-report of their dispositional sensitivity to social rejection, while a subsample of that 122, I think about 31 participants, um, completed a functional MRI brain scanning session, during which they were rejected in the online game that we talked about before, Cyberball. So when they looked at the data, what they found out was that this A118G polymorphism was associated with dispositional sensitivity to rejection in the whole sample of 122 participants. And when they looked at the data from the 31 participants who did the brain scanning session, they showed increased activity which are regions which are activated during both physical and emotional um, pain processing. We are almost at the end of the show, uh, episode one of Sound Science, the science of heartbreak, why emotional pain feels like physical pain. I am thoroughly enjoying talking to you about science and I hope that you are enjoying listening and that you'll visit again soon. But we're not at the end of the show yet. I'm really, really excited about the next part. My next guest is a very good dear friend of mine, Dr. Sophie Mott, who is a clinical psychologist and yoga teacher, also my former neuroscience comrade, um, who now offers a range of face-to-face -face online and phone-based services to support people with anxiety and low self-esteem, low mood, anger, you name it, she's got you. 
met you, Andy. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, my goodness. The pleasure is all mine. <laughs> I'm so excited to have you on. The idea of these five stages of healing after heartbreak, um, are there five stages? What are they? Um, and, you know, is there anything that you think you can do to speed up the process? Okay, so I'm actually going to tell you about seven stages. So I know that the five-stage model after grief is probably the most well-known. Yeah. But I think the seven stages, which is only slightly different, just matches what I've experienced in people and in myself a little more closely. So the first stage is shock. The relationship's just ended. You know it's happened, but you can't connect with it. Some people describe feeling numb in this phase. Right. That's quickly followed by denial. This is a great coping strategy. This is your brain protecting you by just telling you it didn't really happen. And then the next stage, this is probably my favorite stage actually. This is anger. So this is when, yeah, this is when suddenly the anxiety has subsided enough for that rage to come through. That kind of feeling of, how dare you do this to me? And this provides so much energy for you to be able to get out of the house and really do those things that people tell you are useful for healing. So whilst most people think anger is bad, this is one real situation where you can just hold on to that energy and just run with it. But you know what, there is a shift in that, I think, when you get to that stage, because even though anger isn't a positive emotion, classically, it does energise, doesn't it? It does get you moving. Yeah, exactly. If you're fired up, then you've really suddenly, after feeling like you just want to be in bed or feeling numb, suddenly, yeah, it's time to change. It's time to use that energy and direct it where you want to go. So the next one is the bargaining phase. Mm -hmm. And so this, again, shows that you're not still not quite at acceptance because this is the, if only I had them back, everything would be better. Lots of what-ifs, lots of rose-tinted glasses still about the relationship. This is then followed by the depression phase. Other people call it this. It doesn't mean that you now have to go and see someone about your mood. Mm -hmm. It just means suddenly your attention is now very much on the present. You're able to feel the grief, the appropriate response to a great, great loss. So if you're in this stage, don't worry, guys. It's a sign that you are moving forward because the next stage is initial acceptance. (laughs) 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 Some people say it feels more like surrender at first, just kind of giving in to the fact that this has happened but you are very firmly in the initial acceptance stage if you're able to start seeing both sides of what was happening in your relationship so the good with the bad Mm -hmm. and the final stage the stage we've all been waiting for is hope last night took a hell but tonight i bounce back Yeah, and I think you know that you're in this stage because, for example, you see a picture of your ex and you don't feel like you've been kicked in the stomach anymore. Or you're out with a friend and you realise that you're actually enjoying yourself rather than doing it because your friend's making you do it. That is also such an interesting stage because you're often just completely unaware that that's where you are and it takes you by surprise when you're like, oh, hang on, you expect to have a reaction and then you realise that you, you actually don't feel that great (laughs) totally and especially as when you break up with someone most of the time someone will come to your rescue or to your aid and they'll say honestly it's going to get better and even if you know that in your heart you can't really believe it or feel it at that stage so those first few signs of hope it's like a you know like a new seed sprouting new green shoots like that excitement of oh there's 
life after breakup. So yeah, I think it's really important and a really exciting phase. Do you have to go through them in that order? No, so you don't. And also, there's no fixed time as to how long you'll be in each stage. This is just a framework that we use to try and understand the process of grief. Okay. So you might skip a stage. You might have never felt some of the stages. Mm -hmm. It's just across the population. This is kind of a common theme. Mm, imagine if you could have hope first. And then, <laughs> and then you get to the anger and then the denial and the depression. Yeah. Um, or if you could just have hope the whole way through, that would be even better, right? <laughs> um, okay, so I also asked you um, about, in terms of what you can do to sort of alter the process, obviously we don't want to go through this very real pain. Um, mm. So I'm thinking of the old adage, which is the best way to get over someone is to get under someone else. What are your thoughts on this? Is, is there any truth in it? I'm really glad you asked this question. Before I answer it, I'm just going to say that whilst you don't have to go through these stages, unfortunately, mm -hmm. you can't really avoid healing because it's not really like a physical pain. Mm -hmm. You can't just numb it temporarily. When you date someone, you integrate that person into your self-concept. Yeah. So literally the representation you have in your brain of yourself includes that human. <laughs> also, you have memories of them everywhere. So when you break up with someone, people are often lost. They feel confused about who they are even mm -hmm. at that point. So I think that you have to go through some of the stages of healing before you get there. But as you say, are there ways of getting around it? And the getting under someone to get over someone is such an interesting idea <laughs> because so we're all intrigued. tempted I'm some so of us intrigued. do it but mostly people would say oh I don't think that's a good idea do you right. so I'm pleased to tell you that there's some research out there about this the paper is called too fast too soon and it's an empirical investigation into rebound relationship. They wanted to look into whether it was helpful in any way to mm -hmm. jump into a new relationship. And they found that people that rapidly engaged in a new relationship didn't have more negative outcomes. Instead, they found that people had higher levels of self-esteem, higher psychological well-being across multiple different areas. Oh my goodness, this isn't what I was I know, better all. confidence in their desirability. No, this is crazy. <laughs> they had better detachment from their ex. So what I think is really interesting, and I don't know if this is just how I've read the paper, is I don't think there was a difference, though, in desire for revenge between people uh. who had a, a newly new rebound relationship and those who didn't. So it's obviously not all kind of positive. Um, why? Do they kind of propose a reason for why that is? Yes, they do. And they say that maybe people who have rebound relationships have less time to, well, firstly, their lives are less disrupted because they slip from one relationship pattern into the next. Okay, and secondly, people have less time with these fears, these worries about their desirability, because often people confuse uh -huh. their self-worth with their ability to stay in a relationship. Yeah, so if they jump from one relationship to the next, there's less time feeling confused about who they are mm -hmm. and less time with those worries that they may not, not be lovable, which just aren't founded. So actually, based on that, I'm thinking, so those things that really... If it's about that time that you spend... Um, feeling unlovable, all of the self-doubt and all of those things that come oh. along with that rejection. So if you can find other ways to reaffirm yourself, 
I guess that's just as effective. Like if you go full steam ahead into like a new project yeah. or a new hobby or whatever, that should happen. Yeah. This paper obviously firstly has its limitations, so do not take this as gospel. This does not mean you are only going to feel better quickly if you get under someone else. Maybe there are things that you can do to ease the pain, which really is about finding ways to build up your self-esteem, to build up your belief in yourself, and build up your confidence and desirability, as well as your trust of other people. Really is important to surround yourself with loved ones. Other people laughing, enjoyment will release your own natural feel-good hormones. If you don't feel like you have someone you can trust to share your feelings with, just write about it. Write frantically. It doesn't need to be poetry. It doesn't need to be continuous prose. Get those thoughts and emotions out. And if you need to cry, you cry. I mean, I've cried a river over many, many people. (laughs) Another thing is really be realistic about bouncing back. If you set your expectations for moving on to be too soon, then you will feel worse. I certainly know that we've talked about this before, being kind to yourself. It sounds so simple, but people find it so hard. So if you notice yourself saying negative things to yourself, such as, no wonder it happened, I'm a loser, I'm ugly, I'm stupid. Mm -hmm. That's like breaking your leg and then hitting it with a hammer, as in you're already in pain and you're giving yourself so much more pain. Yeah. So... If you notice yourself doing this, imagine you're talking to a friend because you would never say those things to a friend. Oh God, no. You'd yeah. probably, yeah, you'd probably say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, you're great. It's not you. So if you notice the negative self-talk, think, what would I say to my friend? Maybe even write it down in a letter and read it to yourself. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Um, And then just two more things. One is getting active, Uh exercise, goals, reconnect with the stuff that you've always wanted to do. It'll give you a sense of achievement as well as giving you those feel-good hormones. And the final one, avoid, avoid, avoid social media. Anything. Social media nemesis. (laughs) It's our nemesis. You know, it's so tempting, isn't it? You just want to take one look. Just one look, how bad can it be? And then you see the highlight reel of their life. Thank you for sharing those um, ideas and explaining them. My pleasure. I would love to have you on the show uh, again. In fact, spoiler alert, (laughs) we'll be back on the show. We're thinking um, of every fourth um, episode. So stay tuned for um, our next show that will be about psychology and neuroscience combined. to Sophie um if you enjoyed what she had to say and you want to find out a bit more um she's got a website which is www.drsoph.com um or you can check her out on instagram which is underscore dr soph all one word lowercase and you will be able to follow her and get more fantastic tips like the ones we heard today on coping with this so-called life. I really enjoyed 
the first show and I hope you did too and you'll tune in again next month.